Hello and welcome. This is Survivor Stories, a series of conversations from surviving economic abuse, the UK's only charity dedicated to raising awareness of economic abuse and transforming responses to it. My name is Marisa Bate, and today I'm here with Rachel. Rachel is a member of the Experts by Experience group, a group of survivors of economic abuse whose experiences and insights guide all we do at sea. Without her knowledge, Rachel's ex-partner managed to put his name on her mortgage and the deeds. To her horror, the law said there was nothing she could do. Here's Rachel's story. So Rachel, I wonder if we could begin with you explaining in a nutshell what happened to you and your property. Yeah, um, so I had wanted a property for a long time. I'd I'd saved up for 10 years for a deposit. Um, I worked in teaching, so it was quite a demanding job, uh, but I did well to get promoted and save up a deposit. And um, it was kind of like a bit of a poor man's mortgage. I was getting 10% and um, bought the property. Uh, it needed a lot of work, um, but over over time, I, I spent a lot of money in doing it up and um, it went up in value quite significantly after after I purchased it. And alongside that, I was in a relationship and had been for 10 years, um, but at no point had he been interested in um, getting involved in the in property or purchasing or or any of the sort. But um, he insisted on moving in with me, even though I didn't really want to. And um, yeah, I think as I began to kind of like feel like I didn't want to go into the relationship, um, that's interesting when you like propose and went to marry me. And uh, and during that time, he he got his name on the deeds, changed the mortgage amazingly easily. Um, he was actually only technically on the mortgage for two months and then the relationship was over. Um, and one of the things he said to me is, well, my name's on the property, so I'm going to have to we're going to have to sort that out, which was him implying he's he now wants the 50% of the asset, wants the value, significant proportion of the value. So I spent two and a half years um, fighting to defend what I'd worked so hard for and also fighting for the point that he was being very economically and financially abusive, which I didn't see at the time, but basically it uncovered... Um, it, it became apparent it wasn't just about the mortgage, it was about lots of other financial issues. Um, so I fought really hard for that. Kind of one-ish, if you can ever win. I, I guess I had a favourable outcome. I think I'm at this stage I'm just so relieved it's over and I feel free and out of that prison of the battle. So feeling optimistic now, but still not completely out of the water. So that's not much of a nutshell. <laughs> but no, I mean, it is. I was just thinking to myself, you managed to sort of in a few minutes articulate and explain what I imagine was years of agony and huge stress and um, abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder now that um, we've kind of got a sense of what happened, if we could sort of go back to the, the beginning yeah. Um, to explain how something like this can and does happen. You said you were with him for 10 years. What was he like when you first met him? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I genuinely, I don't think he was the person at the end of the relationship that he was at the start. Um, 
maybe there was um, like the potential there, perhaps looking back, but he he definitely kind of turned into a, a different person and kind of went down a much darker path. But he was like weirdly emotionally articulate. He was an open person, or at least he, that's how he came across to me. But um, that changed, I would say. I, I, I saw beliefs and ideas change gradually over that time to, to the point where it was complete, it was a completely different person. And when you said he moved in and you weren't ready or you didn't want that, mm. what was that situation like? Was, was that the first, was that an alarm? Was there anything in your head when you thought, you know, I, I guess what, if you could just talk me through that, though, that transition? Yeah. So like, interestingly, just as, as you were talking, I was thinking about how I I had actually um, moved in with my ex-partner um, and we had rented a place together. And even that I didn't want. But there, I don't know, over time of living with him with renting, I wasn't I, there were definitely issues. It was then I, I noticed he he became quite aggressive um, or he wouldn't say aggressive or even he wouldn't even say the word anger he would say upset or I'm anxious which really was code for I'm angry and I'm going to do something and there was this weird kind of thing going on where he's quite intimidating and I was quite scared of him emotionally but at the same time as that he would play that he was a victim and that he was struggling with his mental health and that what he really needed was love and support and care and that I was a woman to kind of really help him there was no one else that could help him and it seemed all genuine and authentic. Um, but secretly, I was thinking, I just really want to buy my own flat. <laughs> I just really want to get out. And it was, yeah, it was, it was in my mind, and I began to get braver to explain to him that this is the natural end of the relationship because I'm going to buy this property and I think it's time for you to find your own place to live. And that was, in my mind, that was what was going to happen. And then he said, well, there, there are certain events that happened. So his sister passed away, which was really, really sad and really, um, I think, traumatic for the whole family. It was completely unexpected. But he used that as an excuse. He said, I, I have to move in with you because I'm grieving and I can't, uh, I can't have any change right now. You have to support me. And I think there was this sort of unsaid threat of you will look like an awful person if you don't let me move in with you right now. Um, it didn't take much to kind of um, create that feeling of I would be shamed for not cooperating with what he wanted or what he felt he needed. So I felt I had to. I felt like I didn't have a choice. And so I let him move in. And all that time as he moved in, I was thinking, when do I, when is it enough time since? It's basically like the conversation was out of bounds or, you know, I couldn't, there were certain things I couldn't talk about. And I think that bubble of certain things I'm not allowed to talk about just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I think because it happens so gradually, you don't, you don't see it and you don't notice it. And it becomes harder to challenge and ask questions that you're starting to worry about certain things to do with anything, really, even smaller things. You start to just sit with this sense of fear for, for, more and more of your life and your sort of being at what point did you realize that he was trying to get hold of the property and get on the mortgage and, and do things like that did, was that a conscious thing or was it just did it kind of slip into just your everyday I 
don't think I had any idea really until like the moment I left I'd come back from a skiing trip and I I, I came back and I just said I don't want to I don't want to marry you um and he was like absolutely furious um but like luckily he didn't he didn't persuade me to to kind of carry on but then like I said you know he's like well my name's on the property now and I thought oh my gosh like really and I think I didn't even believe it then I hadn't believed believed it before that I didn't think that there was anything coercive going on it was really pretty much the moment I left and had or left the relationship and had the space to look back and see from a different perspective even like a year down the line maybe like I was beginning to uncover things so I remember a meeting with a solicitor or a barrister actually who picked out um, samples of bank statements from way before that was uh, joint account bank statements that had to be provided in order to get the mortgage and um, and to change the deeds and and she just she just looked at it and pulled it out in front of me and she said why is all this money leaving the joint account and everything going into his she said there's even this quite large sum of money here why is what was that for and I just like put my head in my hands and I was just like I don't know I don't know and I couldn't answer any of her questions about what was actually going on with finances and I think I was so busy with my job I was working you know 50 hours a week really demanding role I didn't have lunch breaks it's difficult to access internet banking at, at, at school um, and he was like, don't worry about it. Let me take the stress out. I'm good with numbers. You're not. Um, you know, he was the one supposedly looking out for me and taking charge of the finances to help me out where I didn't have the time. But he convinced me that I was actually incapable of managing a single bill by the end of the relationship and that I was terrible with money because I was terrible at maths. That I was kind of dumb and that he was the one who was there helping me out despite the reality which was this is a man that came from a very significant amount of debt made prolonged terrible decisions around his own finances personally um and you know he didn't he didn't have the position it was way off the position to be able to purchase a mortgage but yet I was made out to be the stupid one who is bad at money and when you look at back you just think that's so ridiculous so ridiculous but also so amazing that he can spin it in such a way um like it's so clever I kind of hate that that how clever that is and it makes me so angry this is a perpetrator of abuse and I'm being abused. oh absolutely not I think even after I left I struggled to use the a word <laughs> and see and see this as an abusive man but I was in personal therapy because I felt so conflicted in this relationship because part of me really wanted to get married and I and I sort of really was quite devoted to this man but also he was sort of dangling marriage to me as like a bit of a carrot as well and I didn't understand why he did that and I I thought well you either want to marry me or you don't and and I why don't you just let me go if you don't want to do it and there was so much weird dynamics going on at the time but I explained to her this um these these feelings that I had this conflict that I had and I very casually mentioned that he had um, at one point uh, slapped me in the car because I didn't break in the way that he wanted to. And it was so quick and sudden, I just sort of couldn't believe it. And and because there was another person in the car who didn't see it, it was like, well, it didn't happen then. And there were other incidences where things happened, but they didn't happen. So not according to him, just according to me and I didn't matter. And I brought these incidences to the counsellor and she said, 
you need to come to terms. She was very, very stern. She said, you need to come to terms with the fact that you are in an abusive relationship and you have been for several years. And I turned around and said, how dare you? You're a therapist. You're not supposed to tell me these things. <laughs> You're meant to help me arrive at that, at that point, if that is even true. I was in full defense mode of, of acknowledging the depth of how bad it was. And I just minimized it. But then I was living with somebody for so long that had minimized everything. And there is such a show between what goes on in the home and then the show that goes on outside the home. So everyone else sees a particular version of him as this kind of, you know, whatever, I don't know what a typical perpetrator is, but or even on a societal level, like, is it someone that wears a wife beater and drinks, I don't know, a lot of lager? Like, it's just the not at all. This guy was quite geeky, like quite geeky looking, quite sort of tall, skinny, um, wears glasses, talks about technology. Like, he's not like your typical perpetrator, whatever that means. So... I think I couldn't come to terms with it and no one else would have even suspected for one second. It was only that therapist who I <laughs> questioned and, and didn't believe. So it was, and at what yeah. stage was that? How much longer were you with him after, after that? Uh, I think another three years. Wow. So it was yeah. proper, she's wrong. She, she doesn't know. But she was the only person in my life, including me, who thought that. Why would I believe her? I was also in couples therapy and she thought he was a lovely man. It's fascinating. It's incredible. <laughs> so you do decide to leave the relationship and he's very angry about that and then reveals to you in that moment that his name is on the mortgage and effectively he owns half of your property. Yeah. What, what was that moment like? Can you remember that actual specific moment and sort of what went through your head? Um, I think I was just terrified. I remember freezing and just being very still and not saying very much. I just needed, I know that I needed to go and that I needed to not be in the same room as him or the same building as him. I think I'd literally um, got back from this holiday, announced that I don't want to be with you and... Yeah, he kicked my cat across the floor and looked like he was going to really, like, lose it with me. And his I remember his, like, fists being clenched and his knuckles being white. And I knew that I just had to leave. So I, I said, I'm, I said, I'm going to go. And I, like, poured open my suitcase and just chucked out everything and then just grabbed clothes. And then I just I went round to a, a friend's house who I'd just been on holiday with um and just sort of got out there and, I, and again yeah I was just like what am I doing what have I done I've completely sabotaged this relationship like I must be crazy but actually it was more crazy that I stayed but he was very intimidating and quite scary he said to me that the other things he said were um I deserve to be punished for what I've done and I deserve to suffer um and he was really true to that I think and he couldn't do that physically because I wouldn't be anywhere near him and I refused. Um, but he did it through the legal system and he can do it through the financial system. So he did. He really tortured me through through his sort of legal empowerment and financial empowerment. I guess less um, emotionally at this stage, but more practically. What was the first thing you did when you thought this person owns half of my property and I don't want him to? 
how did, how did you think you were going to resolve that? Um, <laughs> I think naively I thought the law might be on my side because of the way that he'd physically treated me um, and mentally, emotionally treated me. Um, and so at first I was quite good at taking action. And I went to a solicitor and I said, oh, I need to sort out the property with my ex, my, yeah, I need to sort out the property with my ex-partner. Um, and I said, I'm, off, I'm offering him 15,000 um, pounds. And I also need for him to not come near me. So they suggested a non-molestation order, which actually came from a family solicitor. Um, and the litigations solicitor said, well, where does this 15,000 pounds come from? And I said, I do honestly I didn't know I just thought I'm willing to give him that much and I'm not willing to give him a penny more um you said oh you should really come up with a psalm that has some kind of like rationale to it and I was like this guy just doesn't deserve a rationale behind it he's just lucky to walk away and just leave me but of course um according to Talata law because the title and the deeds have been signed and his name's on the mortgage he is entitled to so much more um and so he had the legal upper hand and Talata law is very black and white as I found out and it's you know you sign the contract it's your fault um and I, I think I went through seven different solicitors hoping that maybe uh one of them had got it wrong or that perhaps you know solicitors can be sort of odd people with not the best interpersonal skills maybe they just don't understand um but no this this was consistently the case I I think it just became more and more depressing how I'd really got myself stuck in a situation and he was so legally empowered and I was so legally disempowered. Um, and I, I think it is, it's that kind of like layer of abuse. You've got the abuse from the relationship and then you have the abuse from the system. And even going to the police, I, I was met with the same problems. You know, they, they said, well, this is a civil matter. This isn't our problem. Um, they 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 said that the physical abuse was too historic because I didn't report it within six months, so it's basically irrelevant. Um, so it counts for nothing. And and I said, but isn't coercive control a crime? Um, and they said, well, yeah, it is, but it's difficult to prove. So I, I spent a long time gathering evidence. I I got statements from counsellors from the one who told me that my relationship was abusive. I got a statement from her. I got a statement from a couple of others. Um, their professional opinion I thought would account for something as well as my doctors but still even showing those pieces of evidence to my doc to um, my solicitor and to the police it just didn't count for it, barely anything I think I tried I think it was raised in a letter by my solicitor but only because I insisted that I felt that this was important but meanwhile they said it doesn't actually carry much weight at all which is so depressing. You know, no one actually turned around and said to me, you've worked really hard to gather this evidence. This must have been really difficult for you. Or the times when I approached counsellors who, who said, I'm not willing to write this down. Um, and I would beg them, literally beg them to do this for me. And still all of that to count for, for nothing. I mean, the amount of work, like mental work it takes to build a case and then to, to, even, to even have someone listen and to understand what you're trying to communicate. It takes so much time and so much mental energy. And I think I did get slower as I went along, as I became sort of more <laughs> traumatized by, by everything. Um, I found it harder and harder. And I wasn't, I was becoming less and less financially empowered to, to fight my own corner because I'd lost my job because of the stress. 
of everything you know the the case became a full-time job so my actual full-time job had to fall by the wayside so so then without employment how could I then fight for my home which is a whole nother you know a whole nother system uh sort of system which is completely flawed when it comes to universal credit and uh and being at rock bottom and in in situations that I did not plan or I didn't do anything wrong I was wronged but even in that even when you're kind of facing poverty as an indirect result of of abuse there's no there's nothing there to kind of capture you really at the bottom um which I know all sounds really depressing (laughs) and it and it is but at the same time as that I've somehow managed to to come out of it and I I'm an advocate really for women my my sister was so angry with me for ignore for ignoring her advice she said the barrister is is strongly advising you just to give in and I just said I can't it's remarkable that after coming out of that relationship and the abuse that you suffered in the relationship you had that fight in you and clearly you had a hell of a fight in you to um, get what was yours, but also to stand up to what is often a very intimidating and confusing and opaque legal system. Yeah. Uh, let alone, as you say, then the issues around um, universal credit. What was the, what was your relationship with the lenders? Because, you know, what, he'd managed to get his name on those very very important documents without you knowing did you when you realized that had happened did you think did I have I signed something I didn't realize like what how did he do that and what was your response to them in this period of fight that you amazingly had within you after you separated um well, first of all, I think you get to the point where you don't care whether you live or die. It just becomes about the principle. And if, I think sometimes when you've fought that far, it just seems like you might as well go that bit further. Um, I'm all it's it, it, it's kind of like an all-in gambling situation, um, and I hate gambling. Um, and I'm I don't think I'd be very good at it either. But it, this was just too important, and my home meant what far too much to me. Um, I'm still furious with my lender. Um, I'm still so angry at, at the bank. Um, every time I see their logo, I, I, just, you know, just tut at them and have an internal rant about it. But um, I complained. I, I kind of gathered my points that I wanted to get them to realise. For example, how the sales advisor was. In the meetings, how he, how my perpetrator had intercepted at so many steps of the way without without any kind of question from the bank, um, that no one ever asked me what I wanted. Um, they said in a bit of a throwaway, "Oh, do you want do you want legal advice? Because you need to. If you do, you need to sort that out yourself." Um, but it wasn't it wasn't obligatory. It wasn't compulsory. It, it was a bit like, well, if you feel like you want some legal advice. Whereas I think if someone had put, you know, had a private conversation with me and said, look, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize how much value you are handing over of your property? Is this really what you want? And maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe I would have thought, well, do you know what? I'm I'm invested in this relationship and, you know, I was perhaps already under the spell of his 
coercive control that perhaps I would have said, yeah, no, it's okay. But um, but I, I just think that that should have been a massive, massive um, point along the way that, that could be protecting me and so many other individuals. And um, I, I like to call it like financial safeguarding. I think that's something that doesn't really exist there's kind of an awareness of safeguarding in other areas, but but not not financial safeguarding. And there's certain measures I think the bank should be obliged to to, to put in place. That's one of them. Or even a telephone call from from the bank to say, you know, it, we're just checking that this is what you want to check in the facts here. Um, but that's that's not the case. And mortgages in particular are the most like the one of the biggest loans you can take out you know they last for decades so something as big um uh, and as long you know a lifelong debt essentially which you know and debt is servitude i think needs to be clearer it needs to be more apparent there needs to be far more checkings go, like going on how is this experience i mean you said you've got the best possible outcome um are you in your house Right. Yeah. Amazing. You were there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm so thrilled for you. How has, you know, yes, I guess on, on paper, you, you, you got the house, but how has this impact, uh, this experience impacted on you and, and has it, has it changed you as a, as a person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I am the same person that I was basically. I, uh, I, feel like quite unrecognizable in, in a lot of ways um I don't have the same job that I had I don't have the same career that I had mm. um I think the way that I left work was also quite a, a sad situation because it was under mental health reasons so after 10 years of working at the same place there was no goodbye or thank you or anything like that it was just sort of like the mental health shame um kind of slipping out the back door which was like so painful but also I, I don't feel like I had a choice um but I'm, I mean I'm actually kind of looking to sort of work with the um the unions actually to kind of encourage them to create um a domestic violence work policy to protect and support victims that's a whole other thing but um yeah I, I'm just I guess for me I'm just trying to think of ways that I can turn the difficult aspects of what happened into something that is a positive um, I was very much under a lot of shame of what happened. And I think that's, again, quite a common thing when it comes to money in particular. And also just being a victim of a crime, you can somehow feel like it's your fault. Um, and you don't want to talk about it. And you don't want to talk about being in a poor place either, where you're looking at food banks or having to use food banks. Um, you just don't like to admit that it's not the most empowering place that you can be. So now I just I don't know I just don't care there's a lot of things I don't care about um I don't care about upsetting people with the truth um I don't care that people think I'm too feministy um I don't care that I use the word patriarchy a lot <laughs> um so I think although it's been awful it has been awful it's been absolutely life-changing and it's been one of the most horrendous sort of like painful torture it's like psychological torture essentially for the two and a half years since leaving um, I'm insistent 
that I will make my experience of value to other people and I don't think that drive for me is going away anytime soon. I wonder about women who might be listening to this who perhaps relate more to the silent you Mm. when you felt that you couldn't say or do anything Um, and now to hear you you seem fearless Hmm. Um, and I can't even begin to imagine really the, the full shades of that journey but what would you say to 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 those women who were you who felt that their whole world had got so small and silent and and don't know how that you know if they're in a similar situation where they'd even begin to mm. to change that situation um I think it's just really little steps forward it's literally all it has been it's like the tiniest of steps forward and sometimes I was so down I would I think I took days like one hot drink at a time because that's all I could manage like um I I definitely have been there and I was there for a really long time I didn't speak to anybody um not just in a relationship at times but also um once I left the relationship I I just kind of shut down and and didn't speak to anybody so I, I completely get it um it's a really horrible sort of nightmarish place to be but I, I think it's yeah little steps one at a time and um I think it was I think her name's Natalie Collins she's like uh, she created the um own my life course which is for domestic violence um survivors um and she calls it acts of resistance just before we broke up it was only sort of a couple of months before we broke up that it was his birthday and I was the most kind of pleasing devoted fiance and 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 one of the things I did was buy him like this lemon cake I had especially kind of like made up for him like ordered for him from this bakery and I remember like after after we broke up I was like I'm going to go to that bakery and I'm going to have that lemon cake for myself and it felt like a real like political (laughs) statement to like go into a bakery and just eat lemon cake for myself Uh, but that I think is actually like a really important act of resistance like I am going to do this I'm going to take back what was mine I'm going to take back what's what's been removed from me and I'm not going to give to somebody you and it doesn't have to be public it can be really private I wasn't with anybody when I ate that cake it was just for me um and it was a really important moment like a moment of sort of liberation and and determination that I'm not going to be I'm no longer under that I'm no longer under that kind of power I mean I say that I've still got issues I've still he's still on my mortgage I still need to get him off He's still on my deeds. He's agreed to kind of come off them. So it's not like I'm fully out of the water at all. But I do feel like he has now signed an agreement between solicitors that he will, that he's obliged to basically play ball and follow the rules that he's going to be off of those as soon as possible. So it's not straightforward and not, that's not the case, but at least he's not threatening me anymore, which he was doing through the legal system, lots of threats and intimidation. And every time I'd get a letter, I was, stopped eating, stopped stopped sleeping. Um, So all that cycle of anxiety peaking and getting into panic attacks, you know, now I don't, I don't have that anymore because I don't have those circumstances inflaming the situation. So yeah, it's good to know that there's not going to be any more of that. He's, he's literally signed that he would, he can never continue this battle ever again. So finally, the law has come to your aid, uh, perhaps you know, mm. a lot sooner and a lot more forcefully. 
It's mm. so amazing to hear you talk about the lemon cake. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll ever look at lemon cake quite the same. The same. <laughs> um, it's very, very powerful to hear. Mm. I think your your strength is incredibly inspiring. I really do. <laughs> thank you. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, You're welcome. If you think you might be experiencing economic abuse, phone the police in the first instance. You can also contact the National Domestic Violence Helpline for support on 0808 2000 247. For more information and resources to support you, search for survivingeconomicabuse.org and head to our resources page.